Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Thursday, August 27th, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. The Scots Wikipedia site that turns out to have been mostly written by an American teenager who does not speak Scots. Some tips and insight on staying safe from COVID-19 when indoors. Breaking down the strange, undefeatable popularity of pumpkin spice. And an update from Elon Musk to be on the lookout for. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. So the Scots language, like many languages, has its own Wikipedia, where articles are written, edited, and maintained by volunteer speakers of that language. Or so we thought. It's just come out that the Scots Wikipedia was largely written by an American teenager who knew very little, if any, Scots. Scots is not just an accent. It's a West Germanic language with its own grammatical structure that's distinct from modern English. Quoting The Guardian, In the Middle Ages, Scots was one of the great literary languages of the British Isles, but 18th century intellectuals, including David Hume, sought to remove Scotticisms from their writing and speech. It has enjoyed growing momentum in recent years, and one of the forums designed to promote it is Scots Wikipedia, the largest open-access corpus of the Scots language in the world. End quote. And it's great that as younger generations embrace a minor language that many of their elders were judged or shamed for, that they have an easily accessible online resource. However, many in Scotland were already aware that the Scots Wikipedia was subpar. Redditor Ultak, who uncovered this controversy, wrote in their post, quote, The Scots language version of Wikipedia is legendarily bad. People embroiled in linguistic debates about Scots often use it as evidence that Scots isn't a language. End quote. The Redditor goes on to say that while poking around on the Scots Wikipedia, they saw an article riddled with errors, conforming to English grammar, not Scots, and mostly using misspelled English words with the occasional Scots term thrown in. So they decided to check the edit history of the article to see if anyone had ever tried to correct it, and that is when they made their discovery. Quoting Vice, For over six years, one Wikipedia user, Amaryllis Gardner, has written well over 23,000 articles on the Scots Wikipedia, and done well over 200,000 edits. The only problem is that Amaryllis Gardner isn't Scottish. They don't speak Scots, and none of their articles are written in Scots. Since 2013, this user, a self-professed Christian INTP furry living somewhere in North Carolina, has simply written articles that are written in English, riddled with misspellings that mimic a spoken Scottish accent. End quote. The Wikipedia user, Amaryllis Gardner, said he started doing it when he was 12, largely using the online Scots Dictionary, a notoriously poor Scots Dictionary at that, and at least originally including a disclaimer that the articles weren't written by a native speaker. But over the next decade, it kind of spun out of control. Quoting The Guardian, According to Wikipedian MJL, another administrator on the site, Amaryllis Gardner had created or edited 49% of all the articles on the Scots Wikipedia. Speaking as an admin there, here's what happened with Scots Wikipedia. They tweeted after the story broke on Reddit. Nobody cared about maintaining it. Someone stepped up because no one else did. That person was never given any guidance. Articles ended up being very poorly mistranslated. In Wikipedia's sometimes insular community, seniority matters a great deal. 
Purely by being an early and prolific editor of the Scots Wikipedia, Amaryllis Gardner gained administrator rights and the power to undo vandalism of the site, occasionally using that to overrule others who tried to fix his errors. End quote. Ironically, Amaryllis Gardner is now being accused of cultural vandalism himself. The Redditor Oltak, who discovered the whole situation, wrote in their original post, quote, this is going to sound incredibly hyperbolic and hysterical, but I think this person has possibly done more damage to the Scots language than anyone else in history. They engaged in cultural vandalism on a hitherto unprecedented scale. Wikipedia is one of the most visited websites in the world. Potentially tens of millions of people now think that Scots is a horribly mangled rendering of English rather than being a language or dialect of its own. End quote. Vice points out that this isn't the first time a specific language-based Wikipedia has been in hot water thanks to the outsized control that administrators can take on in minor languages where there may only be a handful of editors total. A few years ago, it was discovered that the administrator of the Croatian language Wikipedia was inserting his Holocaust denier beliefs into articles. Worryingly, Vice points out, quote, because Wikipedia ranks so highly on Google and has become seen as a trusted, neutral source of information, it's often used by machine learning researchers as a corpus to train languages on, and by ordinary people as a first entry point into a topic, end quote. So what is being done about the Scots Wikipedia? Some are calling for all of Amaryllis Gardner's edits to be removed, although that would be removing half of the Wikipedia. Others say they should delete the Wikipedia entirely and start over. Michael Dempster, the director of the Scots Language Center based in Perth, says he's in talks with the Wikimedia Foundation about next steps. A first-language Scots speaker himself, Dempster said rather diplomatically, quote, We know that this kid has put in an incredible amount of work, and he has created an editable infrastructure. It's a great resource, but it needs people who are literate in Scots to edit it now. It has the potential to be a great online focus for the language in the future. End quote. The Wikimedia Foundation is also working on ways they can both help the Scots Wikipedia and ensure issues among their volunteer editors are sorted out. And in the meantime, Dempster has posted his Scots language course online for free for anyone, including perhaps Amaryllis Gardner, who wants to take advantage of that. So today, Kaki.org featured a piece on the site from Time by chemist Jose Luis Jimenez called COVID-19 is transmitted through aerosols. We have enough evidence. Now it is time to act. And in it, Jimenez underscores how the evidence overwhelmingly supports aerosol transmission of COVID-19 and that while the basic advice of stay six feet apart from one another and wash your hands is still useful, we need more. Jimenez proposes following the acrostic he made up, a civic duty, which goes as follows, quote, avoid crowding, indoors, low ventilation, close proximity, long duration, unmasked, talking, singing, yelling, end quote. Okay, so he's not winning any awards for acrostic talent there, but it is good advice. It kind of expands on the three C's that I've started seeing from other nations a while back which encourages folks to avoid closed spaces, crowded places, and close contact. Jimenez includes some of the other factors we should all be weighing in our minds when considering any outing or interaction, like how much and how loudly people might be talking, if they'll be singing or yelling a lot, if they'll be wearing masks, and what the ventilation is like. 
And on that last note, I want to share some additional tips from the BBC on avoiding transmission indoors. Their top tip is just a great rule of thumb. If a place feels stuffy, just leave. If you can, of course. You know, if a space feels stuffy or stale, that probably means something is wrong with the ventilation, and ventilation is absolutely crucial to avoiding airborne transmission. Another thing you can do is look at the air conditioner, if there is one. Window AC units and split units, those kind of long white units that are attached to the top of walls, recirculate a lot of the indoor air and blow it back out. And that is not what you want. Ideally, you want as close to 100% fresh air coming in as possible. Because the less fresh air, the more you're recirculating the virus if present. Many window units only use about 20% of outside air mixed with 80% recirculated indoor air. It's rare for any kinds of air conditioning or heating systems to be so close to 100% not recirculated because it takes a huge toll on energy and therefore cost. So in a place with no open windows and just an AC pumping, especially if it's clear that the AC is a window or split unit, really try to minimize the amount of time that you spend there. The next thing to do is to investigate the filter in the air conditioner. For a casual visit somewhere, you're probably not going to be able to figure this out, but you know, maybe if you're looking to move in somewhere or considering the safety of your workplace, it's something you could ask a building manager about. Essentially, you want to make sure that the filters are cleaned regularly, because they can catch the virus, but they can also recirculate it. If the filters are cleaned regularly, that risk may go down. And one last ventilation-related note, with all of these things to be concerned about with air conditioners, you might be tempted to open a window, which is great. But Nick Wirth, an advisor to supermarkets on safely managing airflow, points out that if an infected person is sitting right by an open window, the breeze will spread their droplets around the room to everyone else. Kath Noakes, however, a professor at the University of Leeds and chair of the environmental panel of the UK government's SAGE advisors, says the benefits of having that fresh air come in will outweigh the risk. Quoting BBC, an open window might lead to more people receiving the virus, but in smaller, less risky amounts, in her view, end quote. So, yeah, there's still some disagreement on best practices among experts, and it's not like you can really know what type of air conditioner is being used at any place you go to and how recently the filters were cleaned or how much indoor air is recirculating. I mean, in circumstances where you can ask those questions or have some, some control over it, great. And often you can make some type of an educated guess. There are also more and more establishments that are either being required to or making the choice to install HEPA filters, which is a certification required on planes and in healthcare settings. That means that the filter is able to trap 99.97% of particles that are at least 0.3 microns. If a place uses HEPA filters, you can feel pretty safe. It's one reason that planes are actually surprisingly safe right now. Overall, however, like everything else right now, there is nothing that is 100% foolproof. Everything is about minimizing risk and weighing the various odds of risk in any given situation. But the more we all stay aware and stay vigilant, the safer we will all be. It's August, and the high today in New York City is 93 degrees. And yet, Starbucks wants me to go buy a pumpkin spice latte. Yesterday, they announced the return of their pumpkin spice line of products, making it the earliest ever pumpkin spice release in the company's history. It was only two days later last year, and they do have a pumpkin cream cold brew now and other cold options, but still. 
Duncan actually beat Starbucks to the punch by introducing their fall lineup last week on August 19th. And while some speculate these early returns is due to a drop in consumers during the pandemic and maybe genuinely wanting to lift people's spirits, Starbucks's PR team has emphasized that the planning begins a year out and the launch date is usually set far in advance. But The Takeout spoke to flavor expert Marie Wright, the chief global flavorist at ADM Nutrition, about why people love the pumpkin spice latte so much, and while it still reigns as Pumpkin King 17 years after its release. Wright does think that COVID played a role in the early release, and wonders if the pumpkin spice season, run by Starbucks or just the trend in general, might last a little longer this year. She says that in this uncertain time, people are looking for comfort foods and nostalgia, so it's likely to be an even stronger pumpkin spice year than usual. But as for why people love pumpkin spice so much when pumpkin on its own or even pumpkin pie is not so universally beloved, Wright said, quote, The combination of what's in pumpkin spice, cinnamon, ginger, nutmeg, cloves, and good pumpkin spice has allspice as well, it's very fragrant, all of them very nostalgic flavors, very comforting. Ginger is even comforting from a digestive perspective. There's a relationship between flavor and memories and emotions. Where we store all the information in our brains about flavor is the same place that evokes emotion and memories." End quote. And it's important to point out that many pumpkin spice-flavored items contain no pumpkin at all, just that lineup of spices. Starbucks's flavoring does now contain actual pumpkin, but it didn't until 2015. The idea of pumpkin spice was first marketed under one heading by McCormick in 1934 as pumpkin pie spice, which simply combined cinnamon, ginger, nutmeg, cloves, and allspice, and was meant to be a convenient helper for baking pumpkin pies. All the spices you knew you needed in one go. And pumpkin pies, by the way, are pretty uniquely American. Other nations and cultures don't really eat pumpkins in pie form, and also don't relegate pumpkins just to one time of the year, or generally go so nuts over them. While the pumpkin spice latte is sold in 50 countries, it does best in the US, because we are the ones who have those taste memories associated with the flavor. And if you want to read more about America's unique and kind of loaded relationship to pumpkins, I recommend the book Pumpkin, The Curious History of an American Icon by Cindy Ott. Link in the show notes. Now, what Starbucks did in 2003 did kind of put pumpkin spice on the map in the fad way that it is now. They moved the spice from baked goods into beverages, and that turned it into a marketing term and over the years grew more and more into an annual event. Sales of pumpkin spice flavored products in 2019 totaled almost $512 million, according to Nielsen. And Starbucks alone has sold almost 424 million pumpkin spice lattes in the U.S. since debuting in 2003. That shine might be fading, however. The pumpkin spice line hasn't been as successful as the market has crowded up. Among the countless pumpkin spice everything products, Dunkin' launched their own pumpkin spice latte for the first time this year. And apparently in 2018, unique visits to Starbucks were actually down 2% in the month after the Pumpkin Spice line's release. And of course, profits are already down a huge amount due to the pandemic this year. So will the Pumpkin Spice Latte be enough to improve this quarter for Starbucks? 
Well, they're trying pretty hard, and I gotta say that I am actually a fan of one element of the marketing strategy they've drummed up this year. Starbucks created a hotline that you can call 1-833-GET-FALL. It comes with eight different menu options for fall audio experiences. And seriously, it is wild. There is a hayride that you can go on or a tour of a cold brew waterfall. There's knitting a sweater with grandpa in which you get a whole scene of a grandpa talking to you while you knit and sip pumpkin spice lattes together. There's also one that is just a guy repeating the word flannel over and over and over again. It is something else. And I do have to confess something. I have actually never had a pumpkin spice latte or pumpkin spice anything from Starbucks. I am a giant fan of pumpkins. I even grow them. But knowing that this is more about the spices than actual pumpkin, I've never been sure it's the drink for me. Like, I'm not a huge fan of pumpkin pie. But maybe this year is the year. Maybe I will finally try one. So something to keep your eye on for tomorrow afternoon, Elon Musk is doing a progress update of his Neuralink brain-machine interface technology at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific. Again, that's tomorrow, Friday the 28th, quoting The Verge. Musk says the update will include the unveiling of a second-generation robot designed to attach the company's technology to the brain, and a demo of neurons firing in real time though it's not clear exactly what is meant by this, end quote. While the project is incredibly ambitious and treading into slightly frightening territory, it has boundless potential, much of which could be used for good, like helping people who have been paralyzed or who have other neurological conditions. So we are bound to get some kind of interesting update tomorrow. No word yet on where the live show will be hosted, but I'd keep an eye on Musk's Twitter and Neuralink's YouTube channel. Links to both in the show notes. That is it for today. I am off to go petition David Tennant to do a live reading of a Scott's Wikipedia page on his podcast. I hope you have a good rest of your day, whatever you are doing, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.